Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how much trouble has Prince Andrew caused for the royal family? He's absolutely finished if Andrew is no longer representing or supporting the monarch in any capacity or doing good charitably, what is the point of him? There are scathing remarks by royal biographer Penny Drawer and they answer the question of how much trouble Prince Andrew has caused himself, but is there contagion for the rest of the British royal family? The outcome for Andrew is well over a decade in the making, really since he began a friendship with Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein, the sex offender and paedophile. But what did the Duke of York actually know of his behaviour and what had he himself done? Those were questions that were becoming harder to leave unanswered, according to Emily Maitlis, who was the one tasked with getting answers in what is now one of the most infamous television moments of this century. But how did we get here? What does it all mean for the future of the monarchy in Britain? We haven't had a huge official response from Buckingham Palace, but we have seen Andrew out on horseback with his mother since the interview. So there's some tacit, I guess, response there. And could things have turned out differently? To help answer those questions, I'm joined in studio by the Journal.ie reporter Ronan Duffy, who is currently on a UK election beat, but is also part-time sceptical royal watcher, and Anton Savage of the Communications Clinic. Ronan, I'm going to kick off with you because you're going to place Prince yeah. Andrew for us. Who is he in the royal family? Who's he related to? Well, obviously they're all related to yeah. each other, but exactly who is he? Well, just to assume that people mightn't have any knowledge of where he specifically comes, Prince Andrew, he's the third child of uh, Britain's Queen Elizabeth, who has four children. Um, so Andrew, that makes him, he's younger than Prince Charles and Princess Anne, but he's older than Prince Edward. And um, when he was born in 1960, he was second in line to the throne, but he's now eight. So his chances of, you know, being the monarch are pretty slim. But <laughs> as a child of the Queen, you know, he's pretty much at the top when it comes to the royal family. In terms of his own personal family, Andrew was married to uh, Sarah Ferguson in 1986, after which he was given the title of Duke of York. They were married for 10 years, um, but they divorced in the mid-90s and they have two children together. That's Beatrice and Eugenie. Um, Career-wise, Andrew, um, just like his brother Charles and his nephews William and Harry, he pursued a career in the British Armed Forces and he was a member of the Royal Navy and he saw action uh, during the Falklands War, something that came up in that now infamous Newsnight interview. And when he finished his, his active career um, in the Navy, he became uh, a British trade envoy and a position which, you know, he said uh, brought him um, into closer contact with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, so is that where the friendship with Epstein started? It, it's kind of unclear where exactly the friendship started. There's some dispute over that. Um, Prince Andrew said he was friendly with Ghislaine Maxwell, who was um, a former girlfriend of Jeffrey Epstein. She's like the a British socialite and she's the daughter of Robert Maxwell, who was a, a former British media tycoon. So those kind of circles is how it came about. Um, but when it, come, when it comes to Epstein, there's so much to the, to the story. It, it's kind of no... Where, where to start, but where they actually came into contact with it for the first time, that's kind of subject to, to some debate. So let's just focus on Epstein for a minute then. Um, when did we start hearing the stories and the allegations about him? There's been allegations about you know, Jeffrey Epstein for a, a long time, basically. Um, um, he was very well connected. Um, essentially, if people aren't familiar with Jeffrey Epstein, is um, he's an American hedge fund billionaire. Um, and upon his death um, by suicide, he died this summer. He was facing charges of the sex trafficking of minors, as well as the sexual exploitation and abuse of dozens um, of minor girls. 
And like I said, he was very well connected as a financier for years. His friends included uh, Donald Trump and Bill Clinton. He was pictured with all these people and indeed Andrew. Um, now Epstein, he was actually convicted previously of paying young girls um, for sexual massages at his mansion in Palm Beach. But this came after a very controversial plea deal in which he served just 13 months. And much of that time was spent um, in his own office rather than a jail cell. And what and, timeline are we talking about here? What, what year was he convicted in? Um, I think it was around 2008, I think was the year. Um, and what what's significant about this is that when... Andrew and Epstein were last photographed together was in 2010 when um, Andrew, he spent four days in Epstein's New York apartment. So this was after um, after Epstein's conviction. And that's where a lot of the initial questions about the relationship um, started to, to be asked. Like this, this has been a question, the Epstein and Andrew question has been in the media, has been public knowledge for a long time, but it's only really come to a head in, in the last few months. Since Epstein's death and he was found in prison and it's since been clear that it was a suicide. Yeah, well, 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 since since that happened, a lot more questions started to be asked about Epstein and that's how kind of Andrew, every time he was pictured in public, there was questions hanging over about like his public appearances started to dwindle um, over the summer and every time he was pictured, these kind of questions followed him. So that's kind of... Uh, how he was perhaps forced into addressing these questions. Yeah, and Anton, we got to um, a point then. Emily Matlis wrote about this in The Times and she says, they were in the heart of Buckingham Palace and we are interviewing a senior member of the royal family about his paedophile friend, Jeffrey Epstein, and his own sexual conduct. How do we get to that point from what Ronan is describing? These questions we're following around and then there's a BBC Newsnight journalist in Buckingham Palace. Yeah, that, that's extraordinary. What what ends up happening is there's an, an allegation made, I think back in August or September of, of uh, this year, that um, Prince Andrew had sexual relations with a woman, or with a girl as then was, because she was 17, who was trafficked by Epstein. She says that she was sort of uh, forced and coerced into this. This, of course, is a minor scandal at the time that it emerges, but it's one of those things where it is now a matter for the courts to process if she is going to sue, what's going to happen with the lawsuits against Epstein and all of the investigations that go. So there's a bit of a spike of activity and interest back in August, September, and then it began to die away. What we discover subsequently is that Prince Andrew, in the midst of this attention, decides that he should do some sort of interview and begins extended negotiations with Newsnight to do an interview where he can talk about his charity work and uh, they can talk about the Epstein issue. Newsnight quite correctly make it absolutely clear that there is no way that they're soft soaping this, that they're going to ask all of the difficult questions. And he says, sure. Let's do that. And they arranged to do an interview. Now, there's a couple of things about this. First of all, and I, I don't mean this as hyperbole, there has genuinely never been a more perfect case of awful decision-making in conception or in execution. The decisions around deciding to do this in the first place are among the stupidest that any public figure has ever made. And the manner in which it was then delivered are among the most inept has, that has ever been done by a public figure. But there's one caveat that I would put in, in advance of all that, which is we tend to look at everything as if it is a communications problem. Underlying this is a lot of what Ronan has said, which is this man was friends with a paedophile. This man was friends with a paedophile subsequent to him being convicted, he continued to have interactions with him. And at the point that he was friends with him, it was fairly well known. 
to the extent that in a, in a book written about Epstein before the most recent trials emerged, one of the things that the author says is that um, Epstein used to be a regular at Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Trump got a sense of what Epstein was like and shunned him from Mar-a-Lago. Now, if Donald Trump is shunning you, if ever there's a red flag that says this is somebody to avoid, that's it. So what we have is you, you, you have made a horrendous life choice here, Andrew. How do you talk your way out of that one? That's a moral issue, not a communications issue. But if we set that to one side and say, okay, let's just look at the communications aspect of it, it's horrendous. In what sense, what's the worst sense of how horrendous it is? Well, the first thing is, what's he trying to achieve? He's going to be doing this because he believes it will deflate the crisis. Now, anybody at the outset, there's, there's two basic fundamental rules about handling any sort of crisis. The first is you reverse the old cliche. You know the cliche that says, don't just stand there, do something? The opposite applies in a crisis. Don't just do something. Stand there. Don't do anything until, and that's the second part of it, to quote Ricky Roma from Glengarry to Glen Ross, don't open your mouth till you know what the shot is. Because if you look at every major public crisis, the real horror shows are created by the inept action of the person in the eye of the storm rather than by inactivity. So the first decision to do anything, you would say, shouldn't have done that. Secondly, when you look at what do you then do if you've made the poor decision to act? Well, the first thing is you say you want to retain as much control over this as possible. And we, for the first time ever, live in an era where you can disintermediate your relationship with the ultimate consumer. Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, God help us, are the examples of how awful this is, but they do it. They create their own videos, they upload all of their own content, so media doesn't get to interrogate them. So you could say, well, Andrew could have done that. Could have made a video statement, could have uploaded it, and not had to face a journalist at all. If he says, well, I do want to be challenged on this, well, then there's a couple of things you'd have to ask. Andrew, you should keep this relatively short because basically what you're saying at best is it was a mistake to be friends with a paedophile. That takes about eight seconds. Why would you sacrifice yourself on the altar of two hours of interviewing, which is what he did? Secondly, you want an interview like David Frost. You want somebody who has the whiff of credibility, but no intellect. So you're not actually going to get real pressure. Emily Maitlis is one of the smartest, sharpest interviewers there is. Next, if you're going to do it, do it live. Because if you do it recorded, you hand the capacity for it to be edited over to them. And if you look at what Newsnight did, Newsnight, I don't have the, the timings of the masters, but mm. just looking at it, it looks like it ran for about two hours, the discussion with them. Because there's a tiny reference to his charity work that's clearly a back reference to something that he said previously that doesn't make the edit. So he gives them huge amounts of time. And what they do is they edit all the good bits from their perspective. They change the broadcast date of Newsnight so that it doesn't go up against children in need. And they pre-promote the interview with clips of the most egregious things that he says so that they will bump the audience for it. All predictable, all totally legitimate, and from his perspective, self-immolation of the worst order. And I think one of the things that Anton touched on there is very interesting in that we can look at, you know, how these big media stories are covered. The interview itself, um, I had a look at the figures, had 1.7 million people watched it, um, which is actually quite low when it comes to uh, UK TV programming. Uh, Danny Dyer has a game show called The Wall. It was on the same time and it got 4.5 million people <laughs> were watching it. But that's not where the power in this lie. The power in this lie in those clips that were uploaded in advance of the program and people were already talking about this bombshell disaster that Prince Andrew had had taken on. And, and that kind of meant that all narrative control that he had over the story was completely lost. Because if you look at the newspaper reaction 
uh, the following day to the interview and people weren't necessarily talking about what Andrew said. People were talking about the reaction to the story. And that is something that he completely, um, you know, gave away any control of by, by how he agreed to do the interview. But Maitlis herself says, our news world is so often full of bland figures trying willfully to be more bland, say nothing, avoid scrutiny, dodge and deviate from every question asked. And whatever comes of this, I must admit to respecting an interviewee who is prepared to approach head on every single thing that he has asked. Is there a saving... He didn't approach it head on. He approached it arse on. I mean, yes, he 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 allowed every question to be asked, but there you cross a line where you begin to celebrate ineptitude. Yes, it is wonderful that somebody would subject themselves to public scrutiny. We look across the water at Donald Trump, and one of the big difficulties is that he simply never does it. We have chopper talk where he even uses the sound of a jet turbine to muddy the rare interactions that he has with media. But the fact that you allow questions to be asked does not mean that you actually provide answers. The notion that he decided to fly a theory that what proved that he didn't have sex with this woman was that he had the capacity to sweat frightened out of him in the Falklands. Either he believes that and it is an insight into extraordinary stupidity or he doesn't believe it, in which case you have to say that's just venal as a way of trying to excuse sexual intercourse with a 17-year-old girl who's being trafficked. So, yeah, there is a certain degree of merit in the fact that he was willing to have these questions asked, though I would put that down more to naivete than I would to willingness. But the manner in which he then addressed them, I mean, as you go through them, whether you talk about the sweating thing, whether you talk about that he decided that he would explain his decision to live with a convicted paedophile because it was convenient. Uh, And, you know, just to add to that, as Anton said, you could put it down to naivete. You could also put it down to a bit of arrogance, which I think is what a lot of people felt of his performance um, of the night. I think one of the things um, you say, you, you you can give someone credit for putting themselves forward to answer questions. But I think you, you don't put yourself forward to answer questions when you don't have an answer for those questions. And I think a lot of people are so familiar with that photograph of uh, Andrew and Virginia Roberts, who alleges she had sex with him. When she's the 17-year-old she's that we've been referencing, yeah. yeah. Um, she says she had sex with Andrew on three separate occasions, twice when she was under underage. He strenuously denies this. And that photograph that everyone is familiar with, she says it was taken in London at Ghislaine Maxwell's um, house. And Andrew, th- this was put to him, and he basically didn't really, he said he doesn't recall the picture being, ta- being taken. And he kind of danced around the issue and suggested that perhaps it was manipulated in some way. So he couldn't answer that question. So why would he put himself forward to be asked? It? And this goes to a thing, there's a, there's a principle in, in I, I don't know if it applies in Irish law, but it applies in UK law, which is the man on the Clapham omnibus. It is a thing that says the average Joe, the representative of the, the people, what will they think? But that kind of thing where Andrew says in preparation for this interview, I'm going to say that I can't recall the picture, that I don't think I've been upstairs in the house, that the picture might be fake, but I'm not sure it's mm. fake. And I can give this pizza. Ex- and anybody who say, but hang on a minute, that dog won't hunt. The man on the Clapham Omnibus will listen to this and say that is obvious specious nonsense. But he either had people tell him that and refused it and had the arrogance to say, I'll float this anyway, or he simply had nobody giving him the voice of the reasoned little man. Well, my understanding of this is that we're not entirely sure about what the Queen's knowledge of the interview was. I think Emily Maitland said that she was aware of it and she gave the okay for it. But I think I've read a couple of news reports where we're getting, quote unquote, royal sources. And they're saying that the Queen, no way did she know the detail of what was outlined. And you, know, you could say that's perhaps a way of 
insulating the responsibility from these things. But it also kind of shows that, you know, there was a lack of perhaps clarity within the royal family as to what exactly was happening. You see, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. There is a huge difference between knowing Andrew is going to do an interview mm. and knowing Andrew is going to insert both feet or pretty much up to the hip in his own mouth. I don't believe anybody could have had a sense that he was going to do that. Even things like, I can't imagine a, a conversation between Andrew and his mother where he would say, look, the critical thing that I am accused of as I was being with, with this woman, I'm going to establish that I was in a pizza express in Woking when this happened. And the reason that I recall this event from more than a decade ago is because it put me in a position where I was forced to rub shoulders with the proletariat. And we do that so rarely that it stood out for me. What do you think, yeah, Mark? Is that the way to go? Straightforward shooting weekend, as he put it. Yeah. I mean, nobody could have said, not not the, the Queen, not an advisor, nobody could have suggested that this was a good way to go. And the one person I think in all of this who deserves huge credit, if we just look at the methodology before we get, just get back into the, the content of what Andrew said, Emily Maitlis did an absolutely superb job. Because first of all, she and her producers, and they deserve huge credit, spent a week planning how they were going to run this interview. You didn't get the sense that Andrew on the far side was doing the same thing. Not only that, but when she then did the interview, the easy thing to do, I believe, would have been to show off. Would have been, as soon as he hit something like the Pizza Express or the sweating, would have been to say, I'm going to take this and shove it so far down his throat that everybody will say, isn't she a brilliant interviewer? And in every instance, she held back. She gave him room, she just gave him a listening ear and it allowed him to believe he was doing well and get into the really humiliating things that he got into as the interview went on. A, a, a lesser interviewer would have taken the opportunity to prove themselves competent I, and I would and completely agree with that and I think, as you mentioned, Shelley, I'm doing a lot of reporting on the UK election at the moment and this week we've had Andrew Neil doing his big set piece interviews where he spoke to Jeremy Corbyn, he spoke to Nicholas Sturgeon, he's supposed to speak to Boris Johnson, we don't know if he will or not. But a lot of the time that he spent was browbeating these interviewees. Yes, an exercise in display. And like, he, I think he asked Nicholas Sturgeon about 15 different questions in the course of a minute. She didn't get a chance to answer of them. And he got a lot of praise for that, but I'd much rather the Emily Maitland style of letting the interviewee speak for themselves or letting the interviewee not say what they should be saying, which was the key aspect to, I think, what really subsequently became the big problem for Andrew, that he didn't express sympathy for the victims of Epstein and have any kind of empathy whatsoever. He didn't really seem to be too to be too concerned with what happened to him. I think that was that was shown. He was given so much space to do that. And like one of Emily Maitlis' final questions was, you know, this was an extraordinary interview. We're sitting here in Buckingham Palace. And um, is there anything else you'd like to say? And um, he said, no. I mean, he said he didn't have any regrets with his friendship with Epstein. And I, I think he, got, he had so much opportunities to express remorse. The fact that he didn't, you know, was so damaging in itself. I think you've hit most of the headlines of the interview. Just before she got to that last one, she did offer him a question. He said the behaviour of Epstein was unbecoming and that became one of the most viral clips from it. Um, just fill people in on exactly what she said in response then. Yeah, when you do these the, the, these kind of TV interviews, there's two ways to do them. One is you can do it as a multi-camera shoot. The other is you can do it as a single camera. If you do it single camera, you film the interviewee and then at the end you turn the camera around and the interviewer fakes a whole load of questions and reactions. So you have what are called cutaway shots to, in, to interpose in the edit. In this one, it was obviously a multi-camera setup because they were able to take live reaction because not only did she say, I think the, he said it was unbecoming, she said, 
unbecoming. It was either sexual predation or pedophilia. And she gave this expression, which became one of the memes of the interview, which people were tweeting each other saying, this is the expression I have on for the entire 45 minutes. So, and it, but it was one of the rare occasions where she correctly judged, you can't let that go without some pushback on it. But there's two things that I, I think are worth adding to, and I'd like to expand on one of the things that, that Ron was saying, where you say about the thing of the, the victims. There's a, a story told in, I think it's in the in the Smartest Men in the Room or the Smartest Guys in the Room, the, the Enron uh, book, but it's about the collapse of Enron. And it is attributed to Jeff Skilling, the um, CEO, that in the midst of all the crisis, he is supposed to have roared at his top team, where are my communications people? This is a PR problem. To which the answer is, no, 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 Jeff. This is a massive corporate fraud problem. This has nothing to do with communications. I think that thing about the victims goes to the heart of this. At no point, and it is evident to anybody viewing, does Andrew give a damn. Doesn't give a damn in the interview. There is no sense that he has any sense of personal guilt for something they might have been involved in. There is no sense of what the rest of us would feel, which is disgust at mm. the notion that you are around someone because we're not talking about one individual. We are talking about dozens of counts of sexual exploitation and the molestation of minors. And yes, that distilled down to conduct unbecoming, but it's evident that he doesn't care about the women. And again, anybody, if he had if he had somebody challenge him in advance, that'd be the fundamental. He'd be saying, Andrew, regardless of what you say in this interview, you as a person should not be exposed because you are not a good human being and that will be evident. You don't feel any guilt, which you should. Second to that, and it goes to the monarchy's problem, interalia, while he's destroying himself down this channel, he also decides to take down the monarchy a bit while he's at it because he manages to paint his view of humanity as Victorian monarchy, not modern monarchy. He has this line where he says, well, obviously, you know, I was in, in Jeff, <laughs> Jeffrey's house. And there were a lot of people there. And, you know, the way that I, I've, I've been brought up, people are servants. I mean, he sort of said, I don't bother my arse. Paying attention to people. Paying attention to anybody. Yeah. Somebody walks into a room and I go, well, you're clearly quasi-slave, so I don't have to even ask your name. And that was his explanation for not being aware whether or not these were trafficked women. I think, well, that set the monarchy back a bit, Andrew. Yeah, so his future, I think, has been pretty much, I said at the start, like he is being mm. shunned completely. So what exactly has happened to him personally before we get on to what he has done to the monarchy? Well, after the interview, I think it's fair to say things started to fall apart pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> you can sing it. <laughs> like there was, I, I, there was hundreds of journeys he, were, he was involved with. I think KPMG was the first to withdraw its support. And he has this foundation, this is Prince Andrew, called Pitch for Palace. And KPMG was one of the founding uh, members of it. They fell apart and then other charities didn't want to be associated with him anymore. A number of universities wanted to remove from boards and so forth. And it just ultimately made his position untenable because, you know, that's all royalty do. You know, they're kind of a, they're, they're connected to charities. They're connected to, to universities. So when that is taken away, you know, there was nothing really he could do. And that's ultimately led to his unprecedented removal from public duties that he announced in his own statement from himself, which I thought was kind of interesting. I think the statement was put out by, you know, the royal family, but I think it was a statement from him to say he is taking responsibility and that he will be stepping down um, for, the foreseeable for the foreseeable future. And he said he spoke to the Queen about that and she has given him permission. So his future, you know, while it remains unclear at the moment, it looks pretty bleak. 
And his daughters, will will they be implicated in this or will they be allowed to continue? Beatrice and Eugenie have a pretty like high profile. They'd be very well known. They're well courted by charities who want royal names. I think that's one of the things that's forgotten sometimes. Charities really want these royal names on their books. Um, will they be untouchable for a while or will they get away with? I, I think there's... There, there used to be a, an unwritten rule that uh, unless you brought your family into it, most media would leave them out of it. That's muddying, as are all the unwritten rules, as, as social media gets more and more uh, control and play. I thought one of the most unfortunate things in his entire interview was he willfully brought his own daughter into it. Mm. He named her and said, I was taking Beatrice to the Pizza Express. There was no requirement for him to do that. He could, if he was going to use the excuse, he could have said, "I was at a family event." At the fact that he also that invited he did that, Epstein to the one of the children's birthday party correct. as well, which doesn't look well. Which means that now, if you're a journalist, well, you you have imprimatur to say, "Well, Beatrice, do you recall being at the Pizza Express?" And all of those questions come on her. Are they as publicly damaged as he? No, of course not, because they're not culpable and you can't hold somebody responsible for the sins of the father. The difficulty is that the people who make the choices are in things like corporate sponsorship. They don't make them out of righteousness. They make them out of a desire to have public impact. And they will look and say, if my choice is Beatrice, who has this whiff about her, even though it's not her fault, or it's A and other who doesn't, well, I'm going to go with A and other. So yes, undoubtedly it will have an impact on them, though nothing like the impact it'll have on Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew is, you know, in, in Pulp Fiction, when they remove the guy from the box, he's going back into that box. He will never be let out again. And I think we will see that. I think that, I think it was Eugenie got married last year and I think which Princess Beatrice, there's, she's a wedding to come this year. And Prince Andrew was clearly going to be at the wedding, but his involvement in the wedding, to what extent, is certainly going to be poured over um, by everybody. There's even been some suggestions about, you know, what scale this wedding is going to be, breached this wedding. Will it perhaps be scaled down because of, of all these revelations? And there's even been some questions over, you know, the funding of this wedding. Is this something we want to be funding? And I've seen people's suggestion that it should come out of Andrew personally rather than the British state. So it, it, it draws a lot of unwanted attention on them that could be difficult for them to get over. And can I go back just to, to, to two things out of this? I think when we begin to analyse the actual events that happened in the interview, there is a tendency, if you listen to it, to feel that this... That you're being overly cruel to an individual who had a bad media outing and they're not a media expert. I think we have to keep rooting this in the fact that this is a man who knew that Jeffrey Epstein had dozens of cases of sexual molestation and assault of minors against him, who knew that he was a convicted paedophile and who willingly gave him the imprimatur of his friendship and his presence in his house. And there is a big question mark over whether or not the New York Post headline, which was the picture of the prince and the perv as the headline that they ran, was causative in the sun of their friendship or was coincidental as Andrew would allow. So there is a big chunk of this where you have to say it is rare that you see somebody as culpable for something so egregious. And I think I would agree with what Anton was saying there about you know the motivations to the interview. And as he correctly said earlier on, I think this whole discussion is predicated on the fact that you know we put the moral question about whether he has questions to answer aside. But you know to bring that back in for one second. There are women who have been sexually exploited by Epstein who have said that Andrew has questions to answer, who have said that, um, well, there's Virginia Roberts herself. She says that Andrew should be open about, you know, what happened between them. There was another uh, accuser who said that she was lured to Epstein's island with the promise that Andrew w was there. 
And there's also a suggestion that the meeting between Andrew and Epstein in 2010 in somehow, you know, rehabilitated, you know, Epstein, you know, in, in public after his conviction. So, you know, while you may ask the question, you know, should he have done the interview? It's only because of his position that we're saying he perhaps is in a position of power to avoid those kind of those kind of questions. But the whole idea of the Me Too movement is that you take that power away from men so that they can't avoid answering these questions. So uh, that has to be seen as more important than protecting some system of monarchy. Last question, because um, just talking about the crown and the monarchy's reputation after this and the contagion I talked about it in, the, in the introduction, how damaged are the monarchy? Does the crown save them a little bit? What what does 2020 hold for Queen Elizabeth? I think Prince Andrew is, um, uh, it's an unfortunate phrase, but for the next while he's going to be the gift that may keep on giving because his his commitment, although caveated with the need for legal advice, his commitment to give evidence means that you would have to imagine the US authorities would be writing a little note saying, oh, do come over and give us the detail. The other thing is, he left enough doors open and opened enough that weren't that if I was the lawyer to any of the people involved, I would now be seeking further information. I'm just going to leave us on this, what I think is probably a very telling moment um, from the Marble Hall. It's Emily Matlis walking with Prince Andrew and they stop at a statue of Prince Albert and he tells her proudly, the first royal entrepreneur, next time you come, we will talk about that. And that was his impression of his two hours with Newsnight. And we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Anton. Thank you very much, Ronan. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. And a big thank you to Anton and Ronan for their work on this episode. Just a reminder before we go about another podcast from thejournal.ie. Stardust, a six-part special, looks back on St. Valentine's Night in Dublin, 1981, where 48 people lost their lives in a nightclub fire. Hearing from the bereaved, the first responders and those who have been fighting for justice, reporter Sean Murray and the team ask, how did Ireland handle such a tragedy? And was much of what happened in the four decades since dictated by class? All six episodes are now available wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen and producer Aoife Barry. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.